This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today about ethics and culture. Uh, I'm coming to you from the, the Napa Institute Conference out in Napa, California. And I am joined today, there's, first of all, there's just any number of apostolates out here that are fantastic, and the work they're doing uh, benefits the church. But we saved the best for the show. And of course, it comes as no surprise to you that the best is from the University of Notre Dame. We've had the, the, the folks from the McGrath Institute for Church Life on many times uh, as we've talked with, uh, with you about programs that benefit liturgy, that look into how we as Catholics approach the Eucharist and our understanding of faith formation. Uh, but today, we're moving down the hall or maybe up a couple of floors, a couple of flights up from the McGrath Institute for Church Life, and we're going to talk with Ken Hellenius, who is from the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. Ken, thanks for being with us today. It is a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're no stranger to radio either. You co-host the show Living Stones on Modern Day Radio with uh, the dynamic deacon himself, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. So you're you're quite comfortable behind a microphone. I we just recorded I think show three seventeen or three eighteen. So I'm yeah, a, I'm ahead of you, but not by much. <laughs> right. Now I think that um, normally you're on the side of of uh, stirring up trouble and and getting him to talk. This is my job uh, on this show. On this show, I'm the one that asks the the questions and stirs up. So I get you get to be on the other side of the microphone today. It's uh, this is a very uncomfortable space for me. <laughs> no, it's it's good. It's a joy. You know, Deacon Harold and I have been doing the show for six years now, um, and we started it. We were both in Portland, and then I was recruited to go work at the University of Notre Dame at and the Nicholas Center. And how do you say no to touchdown Jesus? Right. I mean, seriously, I've been an Irish fan all my life, yeah. and but I had never actually spent any time at Notre Dame. And when the invitation came, my wife kindly said, it's your dream job. Let's go. Well, I'll tell you, for me, I, I'm a convert to the faith. I came into the church in 2011. And uh, the circles that I was around um, had a certain maybe bias against the University of Notre Dame, sure. talking about it as being a little bit more of a secular institution and questioning maybe some of the Catholic credentials. But I came to a, a symposium there, uh, put on by the McGrath Institute, of course, with Dr. John Cavadini right. uh, in all of his brilliance, talking about uh, pastoral issues in science and human dignity. And I was there uh, at the behest of my bishop and sitting among many other bishops and archbishops and cardinals who are hearing from the amazing faculty of the university, and my opinion completely shifted, and I saw just the incredible value and depth of Catholic culture available at Notre Dame, and through not just the school, but through these individual institutes within it. Yeah, the I always tell people it's easy to be Catholic at Notre Dame, and authentically Catholic. I mean, the Blessed Mother stands atop the Golden Dome. She yeah. is the literal center of campus for us, and 
you know, you go to the grotto, the beautiful replica of the grotto of, you know, at, at Lords, and there are candles lit there, not just during finals week and not just on football weekends, but the students, honestly, every residence hall has a chapel. They have mass every day in, in, uh, you know, multiple chapels. We have chapel in our academic building. You know, ours is an office building and there's a chapel right in the front door and well, we stop and pray. There's a lot of conversation these days about, um, beauty, tr- obviously truth, goodness, and beauty are the center of, of the transcendentals and and seeing God through those things. But there's a lot of talk about beauty in our architecture and in our spaces of worship mm-hmm. and walking into the, the main chapel. On the campus, Basilica of the Sacred Heart. Yeah. It, it is breathtaking yeah. to walk in there and to, to feel obviously to feel the presence of God because he is present in the tabernacle in the Eucharist, but then also to have all of your senses completely consumed and enraptured by what's placed in front of you. Yeah, it's the tabernacle is beautiful. There's a wonderful chapel of the saints' relics. Uh, there's a chapel, of course, devoted to Our Lady. Uh, Saint Joseph is, of course, very important to the uh, to the Holy Cross brothers. He's their yeah. patron. So everywhere you look at Notre Dame, you know it's not just crucifixes in the classrooms. It's not just chapels in the residence halls. But it's the fact that we actually pray together as a community. We, you know, like every you know, school and university, we have, of course, a mass for the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the year. And, and at commencement weekend, of course, there's the, the mass with the graduates and their families and, and mass all the time in between. And one of the neat things, so I work at the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture, and we say our job is to share the richness of the Catholic moral and intellectual tradition, both on campus yeah. and to project that into the wider public square. And we do it interdisciplinary. So our, my director is a professor of law, uh, yeah. Carter Sneed, uh, who spoke here, gave a keynote at the uh, at the Napa Institute just uh, earlier today. Uh, and but yet we have our faculty advisors, our faculty fellows are literally in every one of the schools. We have engineers. Yeah. We have the dean of the business school. We have the law, you know, law professors and, of course, theology, English all of these sorts of disciplines, economics, uh, and it's it's a wonderful place to be and to collaborate with people who are dedicated to that Catholic mission. Well, and, and in, in a very true sense, Notre Dame still uh, really is a, a shining beacon for what the ac- academy was always meant to be. It's You obviously have the mission of educating young people as they're getting their degrees, but the academy was always for the benefit of the surrounding world. Yeah. And, and, and it seems from my interactions with Notre Dame, specifically with with the De Nicola Center and with the McGrath Institute for Church Life. It's very much centered on, okay, it's well and good that we're getting degrees for these students and we're educating them, but how do we then help the church do what she does and to use the riches and the resources that we have as an institution and equip the, the leaders, both clergy and lay, in the church to do the things they need to do. Yeah. So part of it is honestly uh, pursuing learning for the sake of learning, which is different than training somebody for a job, right? It's not a trade school. It is a place where we actually have the joy of learning because God is the source of all truth. And that means that when we pursue truth, we are pursuing what God has given us, what God has created. And so to call you know, ourselves uh, at the university, a community of learners 
it is not just for the sake of something else. It is for the sake of that truth. It is, I guess, in a way, uh, uh, for a purpose, and that is to to glorify God and to recognize the glory that God has built into our creation. And so we not only educate people for, you know, so they can go off and get jobs. We do that, but we also create disciples. And that's ultimately what Basil Moreau, blessed Basil Moreau, the founder of the Congregation of Holy Cross, he wrote that our job is to help students make prayers of their education. Yeah. And that's ultimately what, what it's about. Well, and the, the idea of, of learning for learning's sake. You said God is the source of all truth, but even more than that, all or, or maybe less than that, but tangentially related, is that all truth is God's truth. And so there's never any shyness about diving into ethics or diving into science or diving into uh, you know cybersecurity or what, mm-hmm. whatever the degree plan Architecture, happens to be. whatever it Architecture, be. Right. because as you are pursuing truth and you find truth... Uh, in insofar as it is true, it is connected to God, who is the source of all truth. Correct. And that also allows us to recognize that we are a diverse community. Not, of course, you know, Notre Dame has a preponderance of Catholic faculty and staff. Not everybody is Catholic, but we are here because we are devoted to that mission, which is to, you know, pursue truth for the glory of God. It's very interesting because both in the church and in secular society, you see almost uh, an, an anti-intellectualism kind of taking hold of, oh, well, you know, too much education will ruin you. Right? <laughs> I, it, certainly that can be true, though, too, right? I mean, you, we know about people who are like, well, the more I learn about Scripture, the less I believe it. But those but at, are the odd ones. <laughs> well, but at the same time, I think it, I think that the opposite is true, that it's a person not who is educated, but who is not educated enough mm-hmm. who will come to that conclusion. You know, as they say, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Right, right. right. And so as we, as we pursue a specific line of inquiry, if we're not open to the broadness of that inquiry and we kind of narrow ourselves down, it's, it's sheer, sheerly through that, that narrowing that we find the danger. As as we allow ourselves to be open to all the possibilities, wherever the truth may lead us, that we find ultimate truth is found in God. You know, one of the interesting things over the past year of pandemic where we've been working from home, and the thing that we have missed the most has been those chance encounters in the hallway, walking across a quad, in which you see one of your colleagues, your your friends, Mm -hmm. who are are themselves in a different academic discipline. Right. But when you have a start to chat about what, what are you working on or what, you know, what, what do you have in the pipeline? You realize that there are points of intersection that yeah. sure, this person may be, you know, the world's expert in a, a tzatzi fly or something yeah. like that. And that's not my area at all, but you realize that there's something that we can actually collaborate on. Mm-hmm. And that's something we missed so much. And what makes us excited that we're back, you know, right. I mean, we were, we never actually sent our kids home this year. Uh, so the students were, were present, but we didn't get to do a lot of the extracurricular stuff. And that's what we're looking forward to this fall is the return to normal university life. So philosophy is the language of the church and philosophy is the intersection of all disciplines. It's not so much uh, a certain line of thought, but rather it's thinking about thinking. And so as you, you deal with philosophy, as you deal with, with ethics, which I think is a, is a 
whether it officially is or not, I think of it as being a branch of philosophy. It is most decidedly yes. Um, Thanks to Aristotle. Right. So you have here you have the 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 Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Um, Really, that touches every other discipline that's going to be present at the school. We are proudly interdisciplinary at the center. Um, We take as our um, inspiration and. the the work of philosopher Alistair McIntyre, mm-hmm. Alistair McIntyre, who wrote After Virtue in right. 1980, uh, which which is yeah, which is the touchstone book to which every person writing in ethics since has had to respond to in some way. Right. Uh, whether even if you're just going to reject him, you still have to deal with Alistair McIntyre. Well, guess what? Alistair McIntyre is our senior distinguished research fellow. Right. Um, he still comes into the office. He gives a talk every year at our at our fall conference, which is the single largest event academic event at Notre Dame each year. It takes place in November. Alistair McIntyre uh, is is uh, the person that we really draw from, and of course, Alistair McIntyre writes about the importance of community, the importance of being dependent on one another, right. the importance of of. Um, reading and drawing all of these things together to understand who we are ourselves and who we are as a community and what we are striving for. Alistair is Catholic, mm-hmm. um, started out as a Marxist, right. um, and and came to faith. And is a he's a wonderful man, you know, a bit of a curmudgeon, but <laughs> but he's also somebody who on Monday after a Notre Dame football weekend wants to talk about what happened at the game and and has a sense of these players are us yeah. and they are us because they are our students mm-hmm. and sure he's retired now but it, he's still part of the community and so we draw great inspiration from Alistair McIntyre uh, at the center so the center uh, we're talking again with Ken Helene uh, you got it right yep. I got it right Looking at the name tag, I'm like, did I write this right? <laughs> uh, Ken Hellenius, you're at the uh, the Notre Dame de Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Anytime you have titles, I, I think that they're to some extent important, right? They give us some insight. The words were picked for a reason, uh, both for their distinction and their the connection, right? So you have the the de Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. They're related in some way because of that conjunction, right? There's some interactivity between them, but they're also distinct because we have two different words. So obviously we're trying to communicate something a little bit different. So I want to uh, to start with what are the connections that you see between ethics and culture? Yeah. And then let's go to the distinctions. Yeah. So why ethics and culture? Right? Yeah. Why not ethics and philosophy or ethics and anything else or right. bioethics or medical? No, ethics yeah. and culture. Well, what the first and the single most important thing is because this is how we live together in community. Mm-hmm. Ethics is applied philosophy, right? And it's not only what do I pursue, what goods do I pursue, but what goods do we as a society pursue and a community? What do we value, not just individually, but together and encourage one another to do? Part of that is also how we live together. So that's that's ethics. Culture is a reflection of how do we literally live together? You know, the base word is cult. It's metastasized ethics. Uh, yes. Yeah. Because, I mean, what what is it that we as a society worship in a way? You know, what goods do we value means what are we pursuing together? And so for us to 
change the culture, to reflect upon the culture around us is to understand what are we as a people, as a community valuing or disvaluing, you know, uh, putting a prohibiting. Uh, And so that's why for us, when we look at art, when we look at um, literature, poetry, all of these sorts of things, we, they reflect who we are and they also form who we are. Alistair McIntyre, for example, is a huge fan of Jane Austen. And it's hard for him to give a talk in which he doesn't at some point mention one of Jane Austen's characters. That just seems incongruous if you don't understand that what we read and what we value in our entertainments is also reflection and a formator of who we are. I love this this picture of uh, of culture being that which we as a society deem worthwhile, because we oftentimes as we look at the the society around us, we we decry what culture is becoming. We look at the things that we no longer see as beautiful, right? The, the things that are being uh, elevated for for praise in the secular culture are things that we would look at and say, nah, I don't really praise that. That's not really something I'm I'm a fan of. But I don't know that we spend enough time thinking not just what we want to return culture to or what we hope culture would look like, but why is that culture uh, uh, something that's positive in our eyes, right? To go back beyond that to the communal aspect and say, why is it that I think that this specific activity is culturally beneficial where I look at something else and think that it's culturally dangerous? What how do we get to a place where we can begin thinking deeply about culture rather than just maybe labeling things one way or the other? That's a fascinating kind of idea. Um, Deconstruction as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, part of it also is creating culture as we go though, too, right? It's not just standing athwart and saying stop, but it's creating things that we value, that we place value on and then sharing those in the community. I was part of a, so first of all, I'm a, I'm a convert. I came into the church in 2011 with my wife. Um, and we came from the Protestant tradition. And I've noticed in, in many places that we've lived that um, Catholic culture was lost not because of anything nefarious, but because of a desire to be seen and accepted by culture. Um, the, I, I want the, my neighbor to know that I'm not all that different. I'm not a crazy person. I'm, I'm worthy of being talked to. And so we kind of hid some of our parts of, of Catholic culture so that we could have those conversations in our broader community in a, in a you know, Protestant-centered uh, place. But as, as generations have gone on, we no longer have that distinct Catholic culture. And, and so sometimes we just go back and try to grab whatever without really thinking deeply about why was that part of Catholic culture. Don't just appropriate uh, the feast or the celebration without spending some time to really meditate on why is this a uniquely Catholic thing and why should we as a community really be attracted to it? Yeah, it's the challenge of assimilation ultimately, right? Um, And yet what are we called to do as Christians? Mm -hmm. We are called to be salt of the earth and that literally means to change the culture, not to be trodden down and lose our salt. Right. right. And so to lose the, the savor and the flavor, we I think what you're speaking about, of course, is is an aspect of tradition. Yeah. And we lose the traditions. We suppress them. 
Um, and you can't just wholesale grab them and start them up again because, you know, that great novel, A Canticle for Leibowitz. Yeah. I don't know if you've read it, but this, the world in a post-nuclear deluge and these monks who preserve this cache of learning that they found um, and they have no clue what it means, but they copy out and beautiful illustrated manuscripts of uh, electrical layouts because the, their founder, the man that they worship, uh, or, you know, and consider a saint, Leibowitz, was an electrical engineer. The monks don't know what they're doing. A couple generations later, monks eventually figure out how to create electricity again. Now it means something to them. And the traditions have value again, but they were lost and they were just merely rote copying something that didn't make anything. This is a metaphor, and yet it's a metaphor that totally seems applicable. Well, I, there's another metaphor, and this is not nearly as cultured as yours, uh, <laughs> not to the same degree, uh, of what happens when we appropriate something that we haven't thought through. And that's the, the metaphor of Jurassic Park. Right? right. I'm going to go back and I'm going <laughs> to grab all of these things that used to be and I'm going to apply them right now today. Oops. Yeah. Right. All of a sudden uh, it can go awry and not as we planned because we haven't thought through what it is we're reviving. And yet. So this idea of culture, Jurassic Park is most decidedly part of our of the culture in which we were both raised. Right. right? I mean, it's impossible. And that that question the Jeff, the great Jeff Goldblum question, you know, just because we can do something, we didn't think through whether or not we should. Ethics. Ethics. <laughs> exactly right. So ethics and culture. Thank you, yeah. folks. See you next week. Right. That's all, all incorporated in Jurassic Park. That's your curriculum. Uh, and then go read A Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller Jr., which was written by a man who himself participated in the Air Force in World War II, or the Army Air Force, as it was called, and bombed Monte Cassino. Oh. And reflecting on that, he's like, wait a minute. What am I even doing? It's the monks that preserved learning through what we commonly call the Dark Ages, which we we know we're right. not. I mean, that's a Protestant slur, to be honest. Um, but, you know, the, um, the these are the monks that preserved learning in the context of the life of a, a life deeply enmeshed in tradition. That's what monks are. So let's go back to Canical for Leibowitz in the, in the last little bit that we have here. How do we get from A to Z, from copying down those manuscripts of, of electrical drawings or, or trying to recapture some of the, the traditional practices of the cult of the saints and practicing uh, as, as families the devotion to the saints or other uh, pious devotions, to get from copying what was into deep appropriation and experience with, uh, with that part of culture? What's the, the through line to get us from point A to point B? The, honestly, part of it is rediscovering and actually reading. You, you made reference to it earlier, actually reflecting deeply on what we encounter. Um, there are so many wonderful pieces of literature and that are that you know we can read that form us who we are you know read the power and the glory and you'll see the the importance of living the faith even under persecution you know read any of Evelyn Waugh's novels you know yeah. uh, these are novels of of and and stories of people who are figuring out what the the gift that they received of faith what it means and coming to a deeper relation and understanding realization and understanding of that so culture and, and exposing ourselves to good quality culture like that 
but there's also new stuff being created all the time. Right. Look at the work of Bishop Barron, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look at some of the wonderful uh, poetry of Dana Joya, you know, the poet laureate of California who has wonderful poetry that actually reflects upon uh, the the faith that he received and celebrates the Catholic faith. James Matthew Wilson, a great living poet here in, in America, who's now starting an MFA program at the University of St. Thomas in creative writing for Catholics. You know, so these sorts of things is recovering deeply reflecting and then creating. Yeah. That's the single most important thing, I think. So that's the, that's the principle. Let's get into some pragmatics. What are some, some pieces of culture that you are saturated in and love uh, that you would recommend to others? So I've been listening to Don Quixote as an audiobook, and I realized I'd never read it. Mm -hmm. This is literally the most uh, widely read novel in the history of humankind. Yeah. And it's a wonderfully funny story that has aspects of faith, that has aspects of of understanding what it means to be human in relation to in community, in relation to one another. Um, that's something that has been I've been fixated on Dante's Divine Comedy. Yeah. I listened to three times back to back as an audiobook, and it just made me want to be holier. Well, and I love this because you're, you're talking about audiobooks. Sometimes people are, are maybe a little bit intimidated by picking up the book. Sure. But we are fundamentally wired for telling stories and for hearing stories. Mm -hmm. Even the scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That as the, the, There's the Protestant. <laughs> but, but as, but as uh, all of the, the scriptural writers were putting things together, they were putting it together in a letter to be read aloud. Correct. In the Old Testament, you have uh, the, the the word of the law read to, with Nehemiah and, mm -hmm. and, Ezra, and Ezra, and upon hearing the word of God, the people, people wept. the people wept yeah. because what because of what they realized they had lost. Correct. And so having that that audible not not a product placement <laughs> uh, that audible reception of of deep beautiful literature and culture. I think is is powerful in a way that even reading sometimes can't be. Yeah. I listen to a lot of audio when I'm doing the dishes, when I'm mowing the lawn, when I'm doing the laundry, when I'm, of course, we haven't been commuting during the pandemic, right. but as I commute again, uh, that's when I listen to a lot of this stuff and it's, it's soaking in. And again, stories, that's what we are. My job as the communications director at the right. DeNicola Center is to tell stories, to tell stories about what my coworkers, the programs that they do, and then to get people to come and join us. So people want to come join you. How do they find you? Easy. Ethicscenter.nd.edu. Uh, we have a wonderful, uh, you know, we have events all the time. We just recently uh, presented the Notre Dame Evangelium Vitae Medal for Pro-Life Heroes to Vicki Thorne, the founderess of Project Rachel. Uh, and so ethicscenter.nd.edu, we also post videos to a wonderfully active DCEC uh, YouTube channel. That's yeah. the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture, DCEC. So yeah, come visit us online. And you know, if you happen to be in South Bend, Indiana in November, come to our fall conference. Yeah. Our fall conference is three days of wonderful conversation across the disciplines with about a thousand guests and it, it'll change your life too. We're talking today with Ken Hellenius of the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. We're talking about truth and beauty and goodness and our experience of that. What is one of your experiences with truth and beauty and goodness? 
Tell me about it over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handle's at outside the walls. And there is much more to come right after this. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. Putnam, and we are talking about ethics, culture, beauty, and more. We're talking with Ken Hellenius, who works at the, uh, the De Nicholas Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. Find out more by going to ethicscenter.nd.edu. Uh, there you can find just a whole host of resources to help you. Not this, you know, you think of Notre Dame, a higher education institution, being just for those those young whippersnappers straight out of high school with with uh, uh, doe eyes, looking with hope to the future. But no, I mean there is that, but there's also uh, resources that, so that you can be that doe eyed, looking towards beauty and truth and goodness, and finding these resources to help you appropriate these truths, these transcendent truths in your own life. Ken, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. So uh, we've talked about uh, trying to regain some understanding of, of Catholic culture, of recognizing that the patrimony that comes before us, recognizing the inheritance that is ours, that comes to us through the centuries, through the church. I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, how do we begin to cultivate that in our lives. There's all kinds of books out there to say, well, here's this practice you could do with that practice. Uh, some great stuff like um, the, the, the Year and Our Children, which is a great book for parents that talks about the different feasts and opportunities to celebrate those things in your life. Uh, for us and our family, we've got eight kids. We love to do things around the lives of the saints because yes. we want them to experience the, the friendship of the saints and the intercession of the saints. Um, but there has to be more than just that. Identity is not just the celebration of saints. Culture is not just these these pious practices that's, I think, a little bit more uh, saturating than that. So let's talk a bit about how can we cultivate uh, our Catholic imagination and, and cultivate a, a strong culture in our families, in our parishes, and in, in our wider circles of society. Well, you use the term, the inheritance that is passed down to us. I mean, of course, we hear this even in the liturgy when, when we talk about the faith that's been handed down to us from yeah. the apostles, right? Um, I think about actually in 2016 at our fall conference, it was on beauty in the Catholic imagination. Yeah. And that was the first year I was at the De Nicola Center when I had, I had come. And my job was to get people to come and join us for this wonderful conversation. And there was a, there were two keynote addresses at that that were absolutely stunning. The first was by Etsuro Sotu, who was the architect and artist, sculptor, who uh, is working on completing the wonderful Basilica mm. in Barcelona oh, yes. that was, uh, you know, uh, Gaud Antonin Gaudi's Sagrada Familia Basilica. Right. Etsuro Sotu is a Japanese man who was not raised as a Christian at all, but it was by working with 
the beautiful forms that he had received from Antonin Gaudí and working to complete those, that he came to an understanding of the beauty and the truth of beauty, which led him into the Catholic faith. I love this this picture specifically because typically when we think of beauty, uh, we have a very cultural picture of what beauty is. And very often it's Renaissance Europe, right? Sure. Those are the pictures that we have. And, and it is beautiful, but beauty goes beyond just our cultural understanding of beauty. Uh, something is, isn't unbeautiful or not beautiful because it looks different than we would expect. Right. It, it's It's beautiful or not beautiful because of what it portrays. So... You mentioned the basilica. Yeah. It, it's a very different piece of architecture. It is, right? I mean, it's. I always joke, Antonin Gaudi did this thing that we might even call gaudy. Right. <laughs> you know, well, right? It's like it's like <laughs> seashells made into ice cream cones stacked upside down on top of one another. <laughs> right, but, right. But inside the way that it channels the light and draws your eyes up, yeah. it still raises the imagination and, and focuses your mind and your heart on things that are above. And so in that way, it is beautiful. It's organic forms is yeah. what it is. And the organic forms, as Tsuro Soto, the, the sculptor, spoke about this, what he mentioned is it was reflecting on what led him to think about the incarnation itself. Right. Creation is so beautiful that God and God loves us and willed it purely for us. Yeah. God didn't need to create for himself but he did it out of love, an overflowing love. And that this then is, of course, also the incarnation. Christ loved us enough to empty himself of everything, as St. Paul tells us, and to take the form of a slave, a created being. You know, St. Ignatius talks about imaginative prayer, uh-huh. of, of entering into those, those truths of the faith, but to not just understand them in an intellectual capacity, but to put ourselves there. So if we're, the story. If we're hearing about uh, Jesus walking on the water, then we don't just picture like a movie, Jesus walking on the water. We imagine ourselves being in the boat and hearing the sounds of the waves and tasting mm-hmm. the salt on our lips and, mm-hmm. and hearing the, 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 the rigging hitting against the boat. Right. W- whether or not it's actually historically accurate is not terribly important as much as it is what can we do to enter into the story. And I think that perhaps we have focused so much on apologetics, which is important in its own right, uh, in having the right answers, in in knowing the truths of faith, that perhaps we've lost sight of the beauty of placing ourselves in the midst of the story and seeing it as something that really happened and people experienced uh, and, and had all of the emotions of that experience without knowing the end of the story like we do, Right. that we we miss out on something deeply beautiful and deeply true. So I, I want to push on this a little bit more. How do we foster, because this term is just so evocative, uh, this Catholic imagination through the use of, of appreciation of beauty? Yeah. We are an incarnational people, mm-hmm. right? And that means, I mean, what are Catholics known for? Catholic calisthenics, right? We stand, we sit, we kneel, we stand, we march in procession, we go on pilgrimages, we have tactile reminders and experiences of the faith, culminating in the ultimate tactile experience of our God in the Eucharist. Yeah. It is a meal that we share together and it literally nourishes us. And this I think is where, and where beauty really begins because 
we talk about the Eucharist as the source and summit of the Christian life. And so part of it is entering into the fullness of the sacraments which we encounter every day and not to let them be rote, but to actually experience them, experience them anew every time. This is the first thing that I can think of because it's simply the most important. G.K. Chesterton has this phrase about creation in, in orthodoxy. And he, he's talking about it could be that daisies are all the same, not because uh, of biology or because they have to be, but that, that God has never grown tired of saying, let's do it again Delightful. and making them over and over again. Yep. And yep. it says, he says, and this line is so beautiful. He says, we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we, because he has this, this, uh, inexhaustible energy of beauty and of delight in those things that are creative. Yep. Yep. I had the chance with our students, with a group of our students to go on pilgrimage to the Holy land. And when you literally experience the sounds and the smells and the sights, as you were speaking, you know, St. Ignatius of Loyola, of course, definitely encourages this. There's a reason why the Holy land is called the fifth gospel. Yeah. Because now every time I hear a passage, a gospel passage read at mass, I can see it. I've yeah. been there. And sure, again, as you said, the history, historical space now is different than it was 2000 years ago when Christ was walking there with his apostles. And yet, is it really different? Yeah. No, it's the land hallowed by the Lord. So th- this is a, a reminder to me when I was in in college, I did a semester abroad in the Eastern Bloc in Bulgaria. And for spring break, we, we took the bus down to, to Greece and into Athens. And I was looking everywhere for the Areopagus. And I looked on maps and couldn't find it because everything was in Greek. And of course, I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> right. uh, and uh, so we went up to, I was a philosophy minor, religion philosophy minor. We went up to um, the, the Acropolis. The, the Acropolis. And spent some time up there, and then on the way down, there was this little outcropping that looked over the whole city, and we had, there was this big plaque in, in all Greek, and it did, it, I don't read Greek, so at the time. Uh, so we, we, uh, we walked up, we looked at the city, we sat there for a while, and like uh, three hours later, I found a map in English, and that was the spot. That was the spot, That was yeah. Mars Hill, where, where Paul preached that message, I see that you're a very religious people, mm-hmm. let me tell you about this unknown God. And, and it does, it, it, your eyes are open, and you, there's, there's almost this, there isn't almost, there is this sense in a very real way that you've entered into the communion of saints. I've walked right. where Paul walked, and for you as you went to the Holy Lands, I've walked where Christ and his apostles walked. Right. And, and that ground is hallowed in, in a, a relic kind of sense, right? Uh-huh. Now, now they have walked on this land, and I am connected to it through my relationship to them and connected to them through my very physical relationship with this ground. When we went on this pilgrimage, we took, you know, again, we had 40 students and a couple of us staff. Um, we got on the bus at the university and we went to Chicago and got on the airplane. And when we started from the very first, as we pulled away from campus, I led everyone on the bus in praying the, uh, the, um, Angelus. And then every day when we were on our trip, we would pray the Angelus. Then we went to Nazareth and with the kids, we're all gathered around. And I said, I've been leading you to this moment in our prayer every day because there right here 
is the only place on earth where we change the prayer. When we say the word was made, made flesh and dwelt among us, in Nazareth alone, you say, here, the word was made flesh and oh. dwelt among us. And even as I'm telling you that, I can feel it running through myself, the exact feeling that I felt there. That's where salvation began. Well, and we don't have a story. We have a history, right? We have an inheritance. We have, and so this is, this, we've progressed. Uh, I wasn't planning on going here, but this is where we say, find a way to go on a pilgrimage. Yeah, yeah. Find a way to put yourself in the historical flow, that river uh, of, of the church, whether you do a pilgrimage to Assisi or to Nursia or to Rome. Or to the cathedral in your diocese. Or to the cathedral in your diocese or to the Holy Land, somewhere where you can uh, put in a, a concerted effort to put yourself in the flow of the communion of saints yep. in, a, in, a, in a way that's different than the ordinary. On our journey to the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. This, for me, it's these physical experiences of faith that cement it. I mean, you talked about, you know, celebrating the feasts of the saints throughout the year in, in our families, and that is vitally important because yeah. the saints are the ones who did this exact same pilgrim journey before us and who handed it on to us. So, uh, you know, I, I have a friend of mine who was talking about St. Therese of Lisieux and how how va uh, vaunted she was, like how how far away she seemed because here we have this this perfect saint until she read her, her diary this was like oh my goodness <laughs> yeah she was uh she could be a little brat sometimes yeah. and yeah. she and 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 if she was and i see myself in that i see my own shortcomings and my own failings and and she still had that relationship with god and and so now through my celebration and my understanding of saint therese now i have a deeper understanding of the grace of god there's something about the fact that we're not in this alone i know you have the lock screen on your phone is the image <laughs> of St. Maximilian Colby's yeah. desk and just this messy rat hole and piles of paper and all that, because you see in yourself, if this guy can make sainthood, right. so can I. I'm so glad I work for a tech company now and I don't have paper. <laughs> uh, when I worked in a parish, man, my desk was just piled. Yeah. And there's this sense of, yeah, oh, St. Maximilian Colby, one, St. Maximilian Colby, pray for me on my desk, but two, yeah, solidarity, brother, right? right we, exactly. we understand one another. <laughs> exactly. These are the people who handed on the faith to us. And I love, and actually I got into radio originally, speaking about various saint days on, on the morning show, yeah. you know, uh, and the communion of saints has always remained my absolute favorite part. Well, so th this is a, a beautiful picture of, of thinking deeply about the, the things that we celebrate so that we can get beyond the practices and into the culture. And it's realizing that the saints are not this perfect, beautiful image to which we look longingly, but to which we can never aspire. But seeing them in their humanity and recognizing that through this process of sanctification, uh, what the church would call divinization and sharing in the divine nature, that even in their frailty and fallenness, they still achieved the blessed vision. Yep. Right? And so now it's not, oh, look at these beautiful saints so far away, but now we have this communion of saints, this, this deep uh, and abiding understanding that in their humanity and my humanity, which we share, through the grace of God, we're also going to share in his divine nature together. Amen. Yeah. 
the Feast of St. Lawrence is coming up, my yes. parents' anniversary. And I remember when I went off to college, college seminary, I learned about the story of St. Lawrence. And I was like, oh, that's my parents' anniversary day, August 10th. And then I learned about St. Lawrence being the patron saint of comedians and cooks. Right. Because, because, because he was grilled to death and he told the, the uh, executioner, you can turn me over. I'm done on this side. You'll like, you'll like this. We, <laughs> I, um, I have to say this, though. Oh. Every year since then. I have had barbecued ribs yeah. on the Feast of St. Lawrence. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's a requirement. We do. We, we grill hot dogs. And, yeah. and at, uh, when we go out for, for Halloween, we always, whichever one is the smallest boy, we put a red shirt on and cookie sheets on the front and the back. <laughs> And their little bag, it's a clear bag with flames on the inside. I and it goes it. to St. Lawrence. I so. love it. Um, yeah. And so like every time I'm in Rome, I go to the church of St. Lawrence, which is just off the kind of one of the main drags. And I send a postcard to my chef friend because <laughs> thinking and praying of you, Kirk, you know, these are the, again, connecting ourselves with what we have received, but also letting that color our life. And to enter into the, the sanctoral cycle, the, yeah. the, the saints on the calendar, um, to enter in fully into the seasons of the year. What, you know, ordinary time, that word ordinary doesn't mean plain or boring. Right. It means counted. Because every Sunday we hear, well, it's the 17th Sunday of ordinary time. Next Sunday will be the 18th Sunday of ordinary time. This is sanctifying our daily life. So what you're saying is that ordinary time counts. Ooh. You're, you're a dad, clearly. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and I love living the daily life of the church. Entering fully into that is part of how we begin to appreciate the beauty and the wisdom of Holy Mother Church and let it change us. Yeah. We've been talking today with Ken Hellenius, who works at the, the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. It's ethicscenter.nd.edu. Go take a look at the work they do. Uh, consider being a part of it. You, you Earlier, you mentioned um, the, the talks from... Uh, yeah. You've got a YouTube channel. We, we do have a YouTube channel, and it's linked uh, on, our, on our homepage there, but... Uh, one of the other talks, you know, I mentioned at Soto, Soto, but the other one that's a wonderful uh, history lesson that is beautiful to watch by one of the world's greatest experts is the history of the Vatican Museum by Liz Lev. Elizabeth Lev is an art historian who lives in Rome, and she is literally the expert in English on the history of the Vatican Museum. And she gave this presentation at our 2016 fall conference called The Gifts of the Magi, in which she... Um, she kind of highlighted three popes who were essential in establishing the Vatican Museum, in opening it up to the world, and then in strengthening it in a, in a way that is accessible to everyone. You know, we talk about people are like, oh, the church should sell all of its art and give the money to the poor. It's actually a patrimony of culture that we have received right. that is literally open to everyone. Yeah. And the church preserves it to share. And also, you go into the Vatican Museum and you'll see Egyptian art, pre-Christian. You'll see art from uh, the New World that was yeah. brought back. You'll see, of course, you know, you're going to see the Sistine Chapel. You're going to see the Raffaella stanza. You're going to see the, the very famous painting, the School of Athens, which, yeah. uh, and as well as the dispute of the Eucharist. You could see all these beautiful pieces that are part of what we have all received and what the church offers to show beauty. Yeah. And so, yeah. Ken, such a pleasure. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. If you missed any part of my conversation with Ken Hellenius or you want to go back and listen to it again, 
or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And as always, there is more to my conversation than we had time to air today. There's about 10 minutes of extra conversation with Ken Hellenius available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. To learn more or to listen, go to OutsideTheWalls.com and click that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page. There you'll find this week's extra segment as well as uh, several years' worth of extra segments that dig deeper into the topic of the day. Again, go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more. Now, let's turn our attention to our reading from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips. Learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said to his disciples, Hear the parable of the sower. The seed sown on the path is the one who hears the word of the kingdom without understanding it. And the evil one comes and steals away what was sown in his heart. The seed sown on rocky ground is the one who hears the word and receives it at once with joy. But he has no root and lasts only for a time. When some tribulation or persecution comes because of the word, he immediately falls away. The seed sown among the thorns is the one who hears the word, but then the worldly anxiety and the lure of riches choke the word and it bears no fruit. But the seed sown on rich soil is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields a hundred or sixty or thirtyfold. That reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, and this points back to what we were talking about, that there is something about thinking deeply about the word we've received. If we, if we just go out and we act without understanding, there may be some appearance of growth for a short amount of time, but it quickly withers away. It's this process of thinking deeply on what Christ offers us, on, on truth and goodness and beauty, and hearing the word in its fullness and appropriating it, that takes time, just like it takes time for a seed to grow into its maturity and into producing fruit. And so in order for us to really get to that place where where it's not just the mimicking of, of Catholic culture, but the rather the full maturity and the growth and the fruit of Catholic culture being manifest in our life, it takes that intentionality, it takes the time of that seed being buried deeply and and being nurtured and fed and and watered and cared for and cultivated until that time where it blossoms into its fullness. And I think oftentimes we, we want to jump straight there. We want to get to the place where we have achieved maturity and we've recaptured the beauty and the richness of our faith, but it takes time. And so I want to encourage you, don't neglect that that cultivation that comes through hearing the word and letting it dwell in us richly. Our reading from church history comes from a catechetical instruction by St. John Mary Vianney. My little children, reflect on these words. The Christian's treasure is not on earth, but in heaven. Our thoughts then ought to be directed to where our treasure is. This is the glorious duty of man, to pray and to love. If you pray and love, 
That is where a man's happiness lies. Prayer is nothing else but union with God. When one has a heart that is pure and united with God, he is given a kind of serenity and sweetness that makes him ecstatic, a light that surrounds him with marvelous brightness. In this intimate union, God and the soul are fused together like two bits of wax that no one can ever pull apart. This union of God with a tiny creature is a lovely thing. It is a happiness beyond understanding. We had become unworthy to pray, but God in his goodness allowed us to speak with him. Our prayer is incense that gives him the greatest pleasure. My little children, your hearts are small, but prayer stretches them and makes them capable of loving God. Through prayer, we receive a foretaste of heaven and something of paradise comes down upon us. Prayer never leaves us without sweetness. It is the honey that flows into the soul and makes all things sweet. When we pray properly, sorrows disappear like snow before the sun. Prayer also makes time pass very quickly and with such great delight that one does not notice its length. Listen, once when I was a purveyor in Brice and most of my companions were ill, I had to make a long journey. I prayed to the good God, and believe me, the time did not seem long. Some men immerse themselves as deeply in prayer as a fish in water, because they give themselves totally to God. There is no division in their hearts. Oh, how I love these noble souls. St. Francis of Assisi and St. Colette used to see our Lord and talk to him just as we talk to one another. How unlike them we are, and how often we come to church with no idea of what to do or what to ask for. And yet, wherever we go to any human being, we know well enough why we go. And still worse, there are some who seem to speak to the good God like this. I will only say a couple of things to you, and then I will be rid of you. I often think that when we come to adore the Lord, we would receive everything we ask for. If we would ask with living faith, that reading from church history comes from a catechetical instruction by St. John Mary Vianney. And how true this is. If we want to get to this place where we recapture the glories of the Christian faith and we come to understand uh, the, the depths and the reclaiming of Catholic culture, it starts right here. It starts with taking the time in silence, in prayer, in contemplation, in putting our minds on things that are above, reflecting on where our treasure lies, where are the things that we truly value and investing in those things? And we invest in the things above, in the things that we value by beginning and ending in prayer and dedicating ourselves to uniting ourselves to God and to hearing his voice speak to us. 
That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in as we talked with Ken Hellenius of the Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. Check out the work that they do, ethicscenter.md.edu. Today's show was brought to you by Phil and Tina Parker and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to join their number. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.